0: Welcome to year two of a mick, a mook, and a like. Hosted by four-time Emmy-nominated producer, Frank Pace, and retired New York City firefighter, 9-11 first responder, and Vietnam vet, Billy O'Connor. Today's guest, America's Mexican, star of NBC's Lopez vs. Lopez, George Lopez.
1: My brother. My brother Frank. How you doing, pal? Good. I got him. I got George Lopez. He's got the you man guys, himself. You, you guys have been saying, do you really know George Lopez? Do you really know <laughs> George, George? Derek's been busting my balls yes, for I have. Uh, fucking two years. Do you know George Lopez? Yes, I know George Lopez. I'm We'll have him on the show in about two minutes or so.
0: Uh, you know what? We're actually going to find out if you really know him. Because if he comes on and he says, uh, "Who is that?" Okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, David, come on, Billy!
1: <laughs> What's that other guy's name? Uh, yeah, <laughs> well, you got the shirt, brother. George oh, Lopez shirt. shirt. Well, I, I could have bought this. <laughs> I could have,
2: could have used it for a top. Actually, it's got kind of a big idea. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't
1: have took many of them to make a <laughs>
2: dozen. Well, I mean,
0: that's for sure. You know, yeah, I was thinking that too.
1: George, George always gets uh, XLs and double XLs and triple XLs. Because of he's got a he's got a fit his Mexican friends. Jesus! So look they're the in that they're shirt. big. Yeah. Well, I, I wear it with pride. i <laughs> can take I'm your, gonna have to I, pump you up. <laughs> 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 <What? laughs> yeah. You, you, you,
2: you couldn't pump me up enough. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna start eating yeast. That's what you're gonna do. Just keep eating yeast until you fit into that shirt. Uh, yeah.
1: Well,
0: that's funny. So the election,
1: f- elections are coming up, huh? The midterms. Midterms,
2: yeah, yeah. I, I and you see all the stuff on, the, I don't know, all the stuff on TV. they to try to make everybody close. Everybody's close. You know, Wisconsin. You know, Republicans are going to win
1: Wisconsin. You know. It's, yeah. Well, how, how about Herschel Walker? Uh, we, we could, we could do a whole show on how fucking stupid Herschel Walker is. I saw some guy posted on uh, Instagram. The guy, well, you sent it to me. I think it was you. I think I did.
2: Yeah, about how he's a stereotype of everything bad about... Yeah, yeah. yeah. And the guy was lamenting about, you know... Uh,
0: about everything bad about what?
2: About, you know, those people.
0: <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, wait. Wait. It, it, wait, wait. It was one of those
1: people talking about his own.
2: It was those people. You know those people I'm talking about?
1: <laughs> he, uh, it was a black fella talking about how... He st- was saying the stereotypes. St- how Herschel Walker plays into all Republican stereotypes of black people. Yeah.
0: Well, we should probably go over those. Well, we don't have
1: enough time. <laughs> <laughs> we could be a go over them. We're not here. <laughs> That's what I'm trying to get at. <laughs> yeah. uh, you, guys, you guys are too funny. Well,
2: yeah, so they're coming up. And, and you know, I mean, the, the news they try to make everything's a cliffhanger here, cliffhanger here. Yeah. Ron Johnson's going to win. You know, I mean, uh, I think Herschel's going to lose in Georgia.
0: I hope Doctor
1: Oz loses in
2: Pennsylvania. I think yeah. he's going to lose. The bookies have many ways as an underdog, but some of them.
0: I thought the bookies. Uh, I thought the bookies. Sorry, I thought the bookies was they, they had uh, Herschel Walker as a favorite.
1: No, I think he's down three or four points. Oh, okay. Yeah,
0: three
2: right. or think, four. I points. think it's one hundred thirty dollars if you're betting on the, on the pastor against him. What's Warnock? Is that his name?
1: Warnock. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's like one hundred thirty to one hundred and. and, and but partially, you got to lay out at five. Uh, so the mayor you got the mayoral race in L.A. Uh, and the Marco Rubio versus Karen uh, Karen Bass yes. in Florida. There'll be some interesting races. But the hell with all this, yeah. Let's go to America's Mexican George Lopez. We got some guests today. Let's, yep. get, let's get to him.
0: All right, let's go to America's Mexican, ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, G-Lo the one who does not know Frank. Mom, man.
2: <laughs>
0: Mom, man. How are you? Good. That's, What's
1: that's Billy O'Connor. How are you, George? Real honor. Nice that's, to know you, man. That's Derek Hi.
0: Harris. Hello, hello.
3: How are you?
1: And you are the funniest motherfucker on earth. How's that for an intro?
3: Uh... You know, I'm I'm hard of hearing. You got to say it again. Uh, You
1: you are the funniest motherfucker on earth. Star of Lopez and Lopez, star of the George Lopez show, star of fucking Lopez tonight. Have you ever done a show that doesn't have your name in it?
3: Um, You know, when I die, I'm going to put the wrong name on my. my (laughs) (laughs) Pretty funny. Pretty funny. I don't think I ever have done something, but also. I don't think that there's been anyone in television history who's been their name for everything that they've done. I think that's true. You you've
1: got your name on lots of stuff,
3: <laughs> boy.
1: Well, you got your you name know, on but, Frank's
3: shirt. That's for yeah, sure.
1: that's my shirt.
3: <laughs> you know, uh, you know they can. You know, the, one of the pitfalls of having your name on your show is that uh, you know uh, I hate. I hate that George Lopez show. And then in real life, they're like, I hate George Lopez. <laughs> <laughs> which, which to me means, uh, means, like like Frank told me one time a long time ago, you just keep winning the Bank of America Award. Yep. Uh, that's, uh, <laughs> remember, <laughs> that's the
1: big one. <laughs> yep. Forget Emmys. Forget all oh, that shit. If you, you win the Bank of America Award, you're, you're golden.
2: Well, when your name's on everything, you've got to take the rap, go to bed, no matter what. I mean, you're up front. Nobody can say, "Yeah, I don't
1: know, George who? Yeah, that's right. So let me ask you, George. Uh, why don't you tell us a little about Lopez v. Lopez, Lopez versus Lopez, which is premiering this week on NBC?
3: I believe first you have to be an infidel, um, and then you uh, get a divorce, <laughs> and then. <laughs> well, he's done two of those things so far. Yeah, <laughs> listen. You know, if 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 I was a if I. If I owned a boat and it fell on me twice, I'm not sure I'd be eager to get back in the water. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but, uh, uh, you know, Mayan and I didn't talk for a long time. I wouldn't say it was the worst thing at that particular. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's just you know, Fr- Frank maybe knows me better than anybody in the world because of the amount of time we spent together privately as well as on the show. But um. uh it it got pretty tough there for for a while, you know. And then I, I think, especially, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, uncomfortable not having money, but having a lot of it, and then had to go back to having not a lot of it. I was uncomfortable with that.
0: <laughs> That's a good thing to be uncomfortable with for sure.
3: Yeah. So, so I th- I think the idea of the show came from of all things, you know, a TikTok video that Mayan had seen that a kid was uh, blowing me out um, on there because of the kidney thing. And then uh, mine responded by saying, you know, my, my mom got the bag, you know, the money. And then she twerked upside down. And then, you know, it, it, it got millions of views. And then even Anthony Anderson and I were golfing. And he's like, yo, you see that TikTok Mayan did? I said, yeah, I saw it. He goes, what do you think, man? I said, well, what can I, what can I do about it? I can't do anything. about he goes, word? I said, what can I do about it? And uh, much like when Jed Clampett was shooting for food and he hit the ground and oil came up, um, uh, Debbie Wolf, who was working with Bruce Helford on The Connors, had an idea of putting the show together because her father and her relationship was much like mine and and myself. So... When I when the, they first presented it to me it was so edgy and so out there and so anti-George I thought this has got to be animation <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs>
3: mm. So so Bruce you know Bruce got on the phone and it's funny man you know in, in, in you guys know you've guys, been around a long time you know when the, wh- whoever puts the word out that somebody is not in anymore, they' go, oh, that guy is not in, you know. Yeah, there's other guys. That guy, I know you have a relationship with him. He's not in anymore. It would be tougher to, to get it done. So Bruce w- and I were working on a show with with, with Robert Borden, and, and then it became the reboot of the first show, which we sold to Netflix, but Peter Roth, who was at Warner Brothers uh, TV, uh, rejected it, but I think we'll we'll talk about that later. But but uh, whoever says hey somebody's not in, you know, three weeks before uh, Bruce wasn't in. You know, Bruce is not in. He's and his an old style from the old philosophy of the way they shoot shows. And then Roseanne got fired, and they were going to cancel Roseanne. And Bruce went to ABC and said, if you give me a chance, I think I can keep this show on the air. I can I can make adjustments. We can make it work. And now Bruce was back in. Bruce is back in. so now they come back and then we meet with Debbie, we go to ABC. we went to, we went to ABC first on a zoom meeting they bought it. We went to NBC next they bought it and then CBS passed but the first and then all the streaming services passed but now you had what you want ideally to sell anything you just want two people that want the same thing. Um, and and then NBC was like, we really really want it. And then we decided to go with NBC. But what people don't know, nobody knows this. This will be the first time I told this story. That I had signed a deal with Amazon to do an hour dramatic show, a pilot uh, called uh, um, "Oh, Once Upon a Time in Aztlán." Very Chicano with Mr. Cartoon and Esteban and uh, Jada Miranda. You know her, Frank. You remember her. And so I I, I, I had a deal with Amazon to do this one-hour gritty kind of like the Chicano version of The Sopranos. Really good idea. And now I had two shows and nobody wants to be in second position. So February 1st of uh, this year, um, Amazon had the Shitter Get Out the Pot, you know, day. And they said, we want to extend it uh, for 60 days. We had that in the contract that they get extended. So they took the extension. In those 30 days, this came around, I saved this because NBC was gonna blow it out because they didn't want to be in second position. I say I rescued this show and then I got the Blue Beetle, uh the DC movie that I just did. But if Amazon had picked up that that first show, the dramatic, I wouldn't have been able to do either of these shows. Wow. So in the in the, in the universe or in the whatever you believe in, somebody took care of me and saying, let's stall this one. And let's see if these other two come into play, and they did. I mean, it's it's the ideal situation. So I remember,
1: Mayan, cooking quesadillas at five years old on the Lopez show. Uh, what's it like working with her?
3: Um, you know, you know, my, you know, I, I'm I was very attached growing up. You know, I, my grandfather took me to work with him one day. It wasn't quite like like taking Mayan. Um, <laughs> yeah, but to see Mayan be good at something that's very difficult to learn. I know how much uh, uh, I struggled to, to to do the acting part of it and to see her just take it over, but to see her in the zoom meetings uh, as well, speak very, you know, eloquent and very intelligent about her and I's relationship. And, you know, it's funny, like I would be the person that would come in with a fucking seltzer bottle. Hey, it over here in the room, it over there. They're laughing. And then my would be the one that said, you know, my father was dealt a bad hand in life, you know, he made the best of what he had. He has problems connecting with people. And that's what they wanted to hear. They didn't want to hear jokes. They wanted to hear the, the realness that this show would bring to TV. And 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 it does have a, 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 a strong um, relationship. But also, I think if people watch this show, I think they'll see a lot of the similarities in their own lives. And I think that's where we live. You know, that's what did made the first show last so well. And I think this one is another one. I mean, very special show. And, I'm, and not like anything that's on tv right now
1: yeah because our show george lopez was about basically predicated on your relationship growing up with grandma benny right and now mayan's basing this show on her growing up with you uh, yeah. and, and both of those were very dysfunctional relationships right. why, don't you tell, why don't you tell us a little about your relationship with your grandma
3: you know, my, my uh, oh, uh, uh, my grandmother. First of all, I mean, I can't even remember where to start. This same month. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my friend, my friend Ernie Ariano, God rest his soul, my friend Ernie passed in, in April.
1: Oh, sorry,
3: hey, you want to understand? She comes, this is where I come from. So, Ernie's dad passed. And then all my friends are like, yeah, Ernie's passed, man. So we got to figure out, you know, because we didn't have a lot of money to get buried. And then they're like, uh, uh, you know, I can put in a hundred. You <laughs> got <laughs> man, don't you leave them in the car Let's I said hey man but just bring ice man. <laughs> I'll pay for it. I'll fucking just bring ice. or at least say thank you man. I'm grateful motherfuckers I take him to the Laker game courtside he goes ah the fucking Lakers lost how about that you were sitting courtside you grateful, son of a bitch <laughs> Uh, uh, so, that's, first of all, that's where I come from. So, so when Ernie's dad had leukemia and he was in the hospital, I went to go see Ernie's dad. And Ernie's, and Ernie's dad, Alex, said, uh, you know, um, ask Ernie to come and see me, man. Because, George, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't have much longer and he hasn't come to see me. All the kids have come to see me. He hasn't come to see me. So, I go see Ernie and I said, hey, Ernie, man, go see your pops. He goes, I can't, man. I can't see him like that. I said, well, you know, he's not going to be around much longer, man. And you're going to have a whole lifetime of, of uh you know, feeling bad knowing you could have been there for your daddy. Asked me to tell you, I told you that you're making a mistake if you don't go. He didn't go. Cut to all these, you know, all these people who look like they're living paycheck to paycheck, uh, sitting around a table deciding Ernie's fate, you know, where to put him. So I said, well, you know, I said, how how are you guys going to, you know, raise the money for the services? we're gonna uh, we're gonna have a car wash. <laughs> 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 to bury, to bury somebody, I like Bob Hope buried several at a cemetery. <laughs> I said, just have a car wash and put them in the trunk, and then you just don't know which car drive off. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's like twenty six thousand. I said, hey, whatever you guys want. I feel like Joe Pesci. I, I, Hey, 7000 he wanted to charge. So uh, <laughs> uh so, so, he, he, so, it's 26000 and there's another paper under And I go, well, what's uh, what's the paper underneath? Oh, that's, uh, tell him, Dory, you know, sister. Uh, uh, you know, George, uh, Ernie, uh, one of his last wishes was to be buried by his dad. I said, uh, you mean the dad he wouldn't go see in real life? <laughs> I was supposed to spend a fucking eternity next to him. And uh um, I, I I paid the extra five <laughs> two, to to bury him. That's all so
1: to put the uh, put the saran wrap between the layers of the bodies. <laughs> Here lies two Ernie's.
3: Uh, oh God, that, that, exactly. So so I did so I did that, you know, and then uh, um and my and my grandmother was the type of person that uh, did not like uh you uh, African American people. Oh. I don't think she liked me because I was dark, but. I hated it. Uh, and uh, I used to watch Richard Pryor live in Long Beach all day, from 79 on to forever, all day long. In the morning, it would be on, and she'd be getting ready to go to work, and she'd pass by and look at it, and look at me, and shake her head. And then come back from work and it's still on. Then the next day she would leave. She said, No ten fires this negro like you don't get tired of that black guy. Like, grandma, throw about what I get tired about. So, you know, back and forth all summer, blown Richard Pryor, Cochino, bad words in Spanish, and motherfucker this, and, <laughs> fuck that, you know. and then just I said so years later I said, you know, uh, uh when my grandmother uh, Richard Pryor passed away and um his widow, Jennifer, you know, knew that I'd been a huge fan of Richard Pryor. So um, in the late 2000s, she said, I have a gift that I want to uh, give you, but I have to give it to you in person. So she comes to the house and she gives me a little box and I open it up and it says, Richard Lennox Franklin Pryor has his birthday," And it's part of Richard Pryor's remains in a bracelet. So I got the Richard Pryor remains in 2009, my grandmother passes away. And she gets cremated. Those weren't her wishes. Those were
2: mine.
3: Uh, (laughs) I want to be buried next to my husband. You got two of them. Uh, I'll I'll decide your fate. (laughs) Much like she decided my fate when when, when, uh, she was living. I was deciding her fate in the afterlife. I cremated her and part of her was in this house. So when Richard Pryor came to my house and his remains went on top of my grandmother's, I thought that was poetic. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> your grandmother was in, in, in wherever. Get that from on top of the I feel digging into my lower back. Your
1: grandmother was g-
3: g- quite a character, that's for sure. My grandmother, but, bought, my grandmother bought me two rims at Peddler's West in, on Sacramento the Road. Uh, up there in San Fernando, but almost near Sylmar. They were $95. This was like 1976. And she's been very quiet. I put those out of I said, Yeah, those are right there. Mm-hmm. Those are those? Two. No, I got a unicycle. Two of them. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we go up to the to the checkout thing. I'm standing there, and the guy gets one win. He said, Both of them? What's another guy. Well, yes, both of them. $95. I'm probably nine. And he checks a out pushes a cash register. Ninety-five comes up, and she looks at me with the nastiest look on her face, and she says, "Don't ever ask me for anything again." Wow! I said, "I'm wow. fucking nuts. I'm sure I'm going to need a few things between now." <laughs> 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 I move out! But I mean, just the hate in her face took away from this. Fucking thing, man. I mean, just, I was so excited. Don't ask me anything again. So my grandmother was unhappy, but also her life wasn't happy. So, you know, I realized, you know, that, like my therapist said, you know, you can't, what if a blind person came into your house and knocked over a lamp? Would you get mad? Uh, um, and said, so, you know, he can't see, your grandmother couldn't see. But, you know, I will say this about my grandmother. My grandmother had dementia, and she had Alzheimer's. And my, the joke is, I think, I never took her to the doctor. I think so. Um, so, um, toward the end of her life, she was in uh, Holy Cross over there in, in San Fernando Mission Hills. And I went to go see her, and she was demented already. So, when I walk in there, she's got this look on her face, and she's looking at me and staring at me. And I'm looking at her and staring at her, like two guys that were going to fight in a park. She just kind of she doesn't remember me. She's looking at me, and I'm staring at her like this, and she's staring at me for like ten minutes. I said, "I'm saying under my breath, little fucking lady right here, look at this fucking lady.'" Yeah. She's looking at me, and she goes like this to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, "That's my grand, that's my grand." <laughs> oh shit! We're in dementia. She fucking had to put me in my place.
1: (laughs) She used to come to the show, every show she would come to, and she would see Belita playing Grandma Benny. And Belita was a terrible person in the show. And her, she said to, Grandma Benny looked at George and she said, I, they made me nice. (laughs)
3: <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 you know, so my whole life I want to be a comedian, <laughs> writing notes, do all kinds of stuff. The night of the pilot, we go home. It's late; it's probably like three forty-five in the morning, four o'clock in the morning. And my grandma's just looking straight ahead. You know, never looks at me, doesn't deviate, looking straight ahead. I look over at her. We're right about five. We're at the five freeway past Paxton. We're gonna start to get way to get off the freeway. And I said, uh, so, so what did you think, Grandma? Silence. Doesn't look at me when she answers. Straight ahead, you want to know? <laughs> I said, yeah, I want to know. What did you think? Without looking at me, she says, if I would have known I was going to take this long, I would have stayed home. <laughs> <laughs> Can't be that kind of encouragement you, you know, man, I'm telling you, I I I, uh, I I you know I don't even know how to how to explain the amount of gratitude that I have for my grandmother because without her being that way, I'm not sure if I would have had quite of a quite a sense of humor, you know, or or anything. And then I don't think I ever told anybody this, you know, my grandmother was on a lot, you know, she took medication and had bad heart, and my grandfather, you know, was her her second husband, and on Sundays, you know, my grandfather was from Mexico, he liked to show off, you know, he liked to try to be a big man, he didn't have any fucking money to try to be a big man, so he would get mariachis in the backyard, and he would be drinking and dancing, he's like a whole other fucking different guy, what I'll call him, and uh, my grandmother was telling him to, like, fucking calm down, and, you know, to send everybody home, and he said, no, 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 I'm not done, you know, Sunday, so my grandmother starts drinking, but also, she's taking medication, so she's not supposed to be drinking. So I'm sitting on the couch watching TV, and she says something to me, and she walks by me, and she goes to bed. And I'm sitting there for like two minutes, three minutes, and all of a sudden, I think, I better go, I'm go in there and check on my grandmother. And when I did, she was struggling to breathe, and I had to call the paramedics, and they saved her. But if I hadn't been on that couch, and if, I, and if I hadn't seen her walk into the room, she would have died. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Not that I had to do it again, I wasn't sure what I would be doing though.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, well, as, a, as a young boy, if you didn't like what your grandma made you for dinner, what would she tell you?
3: I had two choices, <laughs> I could eat that or I could eat shit. <laughs> Hang hang What kind of shit? Uh, <laughs> tough bird, huh? Tough old woman. The bomb, cremated <laughs> <the> <laughs> <bird>. <laughs> I, I think I, I, in in coddling kids and telling them everything that they want to hear, I think we're doing a disservice to future generations. I mean, not to be as bad as my grandmother, but I think what if he wanted what if he wanted, yeah, to, if he wanted to go to Chuck E. Cheese? You know, there was a place called Frank knows all my stuff. There was a place called, <laughs> <laughs> a place called Uncle Ben's Kittyland behind McDonald's on Sepulveda, and uh, it was a little it was a little theme park in this field. And all my friends would go over there, and they would have uh, birthday parties, and we would go to McDonald's once in a while. You know? And I said to my grandma one time, I said, <laughs> I said, "Can I have my birthday party at Uncle Uncle Ben's Kittyland?" And she goes, "So what? For your friends to be eating." That's pretty funny. Yeah, I, I think so, yeah, for them to be eating and, and being on the rights. And then uh, I said, uh um if I you know, Chuck E. Cheese came on. I said, Can I have my birthday at Chucky e. Cheese? I guess that's a Chucky e. what? I said, Chuck E. Cheese. About was what's that? you know, the mouse is up there? You know, Chucky e. Cheese, you the kids can be a kid, you know, where a kid can be a kid. And uh <laughs> Look, I, look, I want to see a mouse pull your refrigerator out. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: so, so growing, growing up, Freddie Prince was your role model?
3: Um, Freddie Prince Sr.? Freddie Prince Sr. I saw Freddie Prince Sr. in uh, 1973 on The Tonight Show, uh, Johnny Carson. And... Uh, I immediately like, you know, fell in love. Like I'd never seen anybody like that. I didn't even know that a stand-up comedian could have a TV show. I wasn't aware. I was probably thirteen at the time. And uh, I just, you know, became like this cheek man enthusiast, a huge fan of his. And, you know, I remember the morning that he shot himself, uh, I sat on the edge of the bed. I couldn't believe it, you know. So um, but still remained, you know, I was just starting to do stand-up in 79, he died in 77. But still, in my body, like I would talk about Freddie Prince, you know, to whoever wanted to listen. So when we started to do the first show, um, uh, they would ask me, well, who are your influences? And I would say Freddie Prince." But, but at that point, people have already forgotten about Freddie Prince. It's been, you know, 30, almost 30 years since he had passed. 25 years, you know, 30 years. And then... I just talked about him all the time. I wanted to be him. I wanted to, you know, be a comedian, and all this and that. So when the show was going into the hundredth episode, I think in two thousand six, uh, Johnny Grant, the little dude, the little mayor of uh, Mayor of Hollywood. The mayor of Hollywood asked me at uh, a Steve Edwards star, you know, Hey, I think it's time that, you know, we put you in the walk of fame. And I said, Well, I'm not going in until Freddie Prince goes in and he looks at his assistant and he said, I think Freddie is in. I said, I don't think he's in, you know. And he goes, Well, we'll check and see. So like five days later, he calls me, he said, he's not in, but if you want him to be in, you know, he can be in, and then, you know, you can go in. So I said, all right. So I paid the $10,000 for Freddie to go in, and then I went in. And then the idea that I would do that for Freddie Prince, and then, you know, I knew Junior by then, you know, and we'd looked into Toluca Lake, and his mom lived around the corner from us. And and um, so they were all there, Della Reese and all Freddie Prince's friend. All the people. And then Freddie Prince Jr. says, you know, my grandmother wants to talk to you. She was in Puerto Rico. And I said, hello. And she goes, oh, George, you know, my Freddie. She used to call him, my Freddie. Uh, thank you for thinking about my Freddie. You know, everybody forgot about my Freddie. And then she said, you know, if if my Freddie and you were ever, if my Freddie was alive, you and him would be best friends. I mean, all the stuff that was like really meant so much to me, you know. And uh, I never forgot Freddie Prinze or uh, what his impact uh, was on me, even to, even to even now, even today.
1: That's great. Yeah. That's great. So how'd you hook up with Sandy
3: Bullock? Uh, Jonathan, this guy, Jonathan Comack, um, this is during the 1999, maybe 98, in July of uh, that month, the 98, 99, they said, hey, a producer wants to see you at the lap factory. You know, he came and saw me, and I didn't find him afterwards, and then he was like, where did this guy go? So a whole calendar year goes by. And then he calls me like in July of the next year, so maybe 2000, around there. And he said, you're still interested in this idea? That, said, what idea? We, didn't, we haven't even talked. So I found out that Sandra Bullock was the partner and that she was trying to do a situation comedy or produce something for TV. She had become disillusioned with TV. You know, her mother had passed and she was kind of just wanting to step away from the uh, the light. And uh, it took a couple of months for her to be able to come and see me. and then. She came to see me, in, in Brea. I got Sandra Bullock to drive from Hollywood and Crescent Heights to Brea, California. which is probably sixty-five miles, and uh, her, her, I said, "Follow me." And her car was banging the whole way. And I thought, man, at some point she's going to veer off. Like fuck this guy, I'm going this party. So, but she did. She came. Then the, we talked. We went into the office and we talked, and uh, um, it became it became the show for sure.
1: Wow, I remember we're, we were doing Nikki. And Bruce Helford was going to bring Sandy to the stage, and he, he didn't say he didn't mention your name, but he said, "I'm going to bring Sandra Bullock to the stage, but I'm not because I want to, I'm interested in doing anything with her, but I just want to meet Sandra Bullock, and she wanted to come and see what we did. And when he met her, he fell in love with her, as as everybody did, uh, yeah. and that that proceeded to uh, a, a, not even a pilot four episodes and that we got, uh, year, and then we got another year and then we got another year and then we got another year and we got another year, uh, yeah. in doing the pilot that, or the first episode, there was a funny story about someone in, in inspecting the kitchen. Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs>
3: why
1: don't you tell about that story?
3: So I was in the writer's room and somebody comes in, they said, George, and come outside, they go, uh, uh, I would, I'll call her. I don't want to say her name. Uh, Deb, Oppenheimer. Fred, De- Deb
1: Oppenheimer. I'll will say it, Deb Oppenheimer.
3: Deb Oppenheimer. They want to see you <laughs> on the stage. they were starting to put the the stage together. So I get there and they're they're standing there like this, like you know, very very you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "What's going on?" Uh, De- Deborah goes, "You know, I invited my friend Brenda here because she's half Mexican." And we're looking at the kitchen and there's nothing in the kitchen to indicate that, that this is the family, a Mexican family. And I'm, I'm like, what, what? Yeah, there's nothing here that indicates that it's a Mexican family. And I said, hang on. And I go in the kitchen, I turn around, I go, how about now? <laughs> yeah, put the Mexicans in the in the kitchen. And I go, I go. How about the Mexicans in the kitchen? How about now? <laughs> now How about now? Run up, uh, huh? so the idea that it had to have like, and they try to sneak this shit by me in the pot, like like a picture of glass, a picture with glasses with chili peppers on the glass. I said, uh. Uh-uh. <laughs> they
2: wanted to steal time.
3: Take wow. this shit out of here and. Uh, she denies that she said that, but I'm mean, there. I think, frankly, I think you were there. Uh, I
1: believe it. I was there myself. I w- we also wrote it in the book w- with names.
3: Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, everything was brand new to me. And uh, I had Frank, you know, I think I had Frank. Frank, Frank kept me, uh, he kept me even, man. He was the Angelo Dundee to my Muhammad Ali. <laughs> nice, nice. Wow. See? Yeah, yeah, that's a that. nice name. Oh, that's right. a metaphor.
2: Angelo Dundee. And
3: yes? Derek, Derek didn't even think I knew you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> we didn't believe him all
3: these years. Nah, uh-huh. the uh, yeah, I mean, he was very instrumental to to uh, to uh, even my even mine to this day. My says, "Have another piece of pizza. You're slurring your work." We up? at a rap party at Karen told Frank that.
2: Gary Carol uh, hey, <laughs> have another piece of pizza. You're slurring." What do you have two Shirley
0: Temples hey? Have another piece of pizza you're slur <laughs> Come on, George! Give him some more. I Angelo oh, for Ali.
1: I like that. Shit. Uh, do,
0: you,
1: do you have a favorite episode or two of uh, Lopez Show?
3: Well, you know, I knew that Frank and I were going to be friends. <laughs> we, in the first four episodes, we did an episode about Stranger Danger. Yeah, uh, my, son, my son wanted to walk to school, you know, for the first time by himself, and I didn't know that. And I, and you know, I hadn't had a television. I didn't know that instead of using an extra that's a child they use extra that an adult but uh, maybe a a, a, a little, born, little people you know and uh, <laughs> They brought this little girl, man, and she's <laughs> throwing the ball with my son. You know, and she's like, and he uh, called her like Polly Pocket because she was fine, but she was about this big. <laughs> so, her, I, uh, her arms elbowed out, you know, but a little bit, you know, they all bowed out a little bit. So, but. We, we kept we couldn't believe that somebody that fine could come that small like you know that's probably that's so, uh, sure. probably what found out when they did the fun size almond joys
1: with the Polly Pocket because you could you could you could do it and then fold her up and put it away in your pocket.
2: <laughs> that's fine. It Could be so small.
1: Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I, again, we had we had a little person standing and then we had another little person or with something else and <laughs> we looked over to our prop guy and our prop guy was standing there with two little people and george said look one and two half men <laughs>
3: <laughs> not the huh? oh shit you know the the, the 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 idea that we did a roast you know there was this guy named Marty Nedboy, you know, and, and uh, when we started to do the show, Frank says, hey, I got somebody that I want to hire. Uh, I, and I said, well, what does he do? Frank goes, nothing. <laughs> 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 so when, you meet, when you meet him, you'll love, you'll love him. So we meet Marty. So he's, he's got Polymer. fucking all over his shirt. I go, hey, Marty, what's the, what's the soup of the day? Lick your badge and let us know. <laughs> he would just go, to the, just go to the craft service and just... Put, put the spoon to his mouth and put it back in there. It's <laughs> <You know, laughs> like the worst thing. And then I didn't know he was an older Jewish guy, man. I didn't know what his sexual orientation was, you know. So he had these glasses that <laughs> sat like this, you know, <laughs> all taped on them and, and asking, all dirty, couldn't see through them. So when the show first started, I said, hey, I'm going to take you to Lens Crafters, man. I'm going to get you some new glasses. And uh, we go there to Lens Crafters and he got some Wayfarers, beautiful glasses, man, beautiful glasses. And I said, uh, I said, uh, um, now I got to get you some pussy. And, uh, he said, I'd rather have the pots and pans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, he came over for Thanksgiving, you know, he came over Thanksgiving one year and I think I was flying in from some place and had a limo. They don't use limos anymore. They use like Tom. Curry. So I use a limo. And I said, "Ann says, you know, can you go pick up Marty, uh, uh, while uh, you know, then bring him to the house on your way. So I go there and I, I have Ann call. I said, tell him I'm outside. And five minutes goes by, ten minutes goes by. Fucking call her again. I said, hey, call this dude and tell him I'm outside. Fucking half hour goes by, forty five minutes goes by. He comes out. and I said, hey, motherfucker, what's taking you so long? I just wanted all of my neighbors to see you. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, one time, <laughs> waiting, by, waiting by the car.
1: <laughs> one time, we were on stage five or stage four, whatever it was, and uh, Marty called his friend Lou to come see him, and he, he Lou shows up with a pass that says George Gobel show. Do you remember that? Instead of oh George Lopez show, God. George, George Gobel show. That was a funny fucking motherfucker, boy.
3: Man, he was he was great, man. And you know, he would say to me, "What what would you do?" He goes, "Can I ask you a question?" I said, "What well, he goes, what would you do if they outlawed burritos?"
1: <laughs> that was the last thing he said to you as he was leaving, as, was as, we, as we were leaving his uh, rest home before before he passed away. He said, he what, "What would we do if we if they ever outlawed burritos?" Uh, so back to your favorite shows. Uh, do you have one or two? I I know I loved <laughs> I loved the story about President Bush going to the White House. <laughs>
3: So I go do I go do the Ford Theater, you know. They used to do these shows, you know. And uh, uh, so we go do the Ford Theater. President Bush is there, and they introduce all of us. And I get next to him. I look down, and I see his speech there. It's all spelled phonetically and highlighted, like Lopez is L O W P E Z. Leanne rhymes. it said like Lee capital L E E and Ry- I mean, just the I mean, a child, a child wouldn't have shit written like this. So I'm looking down at it and I said, man, that shit is crazy. So everybody leaves. I grabbed the, 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 the script, the notes, and I put it in my pocket under my arm. I walk off. I go to this dinner and, and and I'm in the car on the way to the dinner. I'm showing everybody. They're passing them around. I said, Hey, I'm going to put them in a frame. One by there's eight of them. I'm going to put them one, two, three, put it in my office right there. You know, to go and, and, uh, Everybody's laughing, we're on the thing, we're laughing. I get to the dinner, and Tom Scott, the, the, the band leader, comes up to me. He goes, hey, man, the Secret Service is looking for you. And he says, they're on to you. And I said, like, fucking on to me? What, what do you mean? They know you took the script. I said, hey, how do they know I took the script? They don't, they don't know anything. So I said, I, I said I'm going to tell them I don't have it. You know, So everybody at the table like, you better give them the script. I said, I don't have it. I, don't have it. I said, I'm just going to tell them I don't have it. What are they going to do to me? So five minutes later, two guys walk up behind me. Secret Service guys. Guy talks into his wrist. It was a uh, we pout him, and he goes, "Because <laughs> we're, we're looking for the script, and uh, our sole duty is to return that script to the safety of the White House." And instead of saying, uh, "You know, I don't have it," I fold it. I said, "It's in the car." <laughs> <laughs> so
1: we, we made the entire episode of the first season oh. about that, and and also I should say. Uh, it, because the George Lopez show was a ceiling breaker, we were the first show to have a, an all Hispanic, uh, uh, cast, uh, only the only other person, uh, no other person had his name in the title before George, uh, no other Latin cast, uh, was in it. Uh, it was really a ceiling breaker for us. Uh, and we, we, I'm so proud of that show and I'm so proud of everything George has done and what George has become. Uh, how about the, the baseball episode? Oh, the bobbleheads. Man. Bobbleheads.
3: The Bobbleheads, became like a legendary show now, you know, and uh, Rod did it, Joe Morgan got rest of soul, and uh, Jim Palmer and Steve Garvey, and the idea of making those guys Bobbleheads was brilliant. I mean, the idea that I would be sleeping and my son didn't want, and you know, it was because of my... End, was playing t-ball and then they were getting very competitive, you know, and she had kind of lost her desire to, to play. And it just kind of, you know, i played baseball my whole life. I love baseball. And, you know, I would bring these stories into the, into the show and tell them, you know, that, you know, she didn't want to play. And we made it about the son not wanting to play baseball and you wanted to bake cookies for the team. And Steve Garvey's bobblehead goes, that's how I got started. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. But the idea that those guys would come to see me, like it, it was all so new. Um, they were all in the ma- I mean, Frank came and said, Hey, those guys are here, man. They're in the makeup trailer. Uh I just looked at them in the makeup chairs and they're like, Hey, George, you know, all of my idols there. And I went out of that area there and back behind it was a little walk where you could walk between the built the stage and where the makeup it was inside. And I cried there, I cried. I think Frank found wow. me back.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I just talked to Rod Thursday, and he said to say hello to you for sure. Yeah, for
3: sure. yeah I mean, because baseball meant so much to me. You know, my grandparents too was like the only thing that we did together. But and uh, it was uh, it was very special, man. To to see those guys come for me. I mean, Frank, Frank would always say, that's what Frank said. Frank, these guys came to see you, and I would, you know, I would never equate it like that, you know. But uh, he put everything in perspective for me. It was very nice.
1: Yeah, that we had a great. You had a great line in there to Max. You said you're a Mexican, not a
3: Mexicant. That's right.
1: That was a great line. A that's great right. line. So and then we I,
3: in, I'll take a Frank pitching baseball uh, batting practice to me, and I swung missed, it was way up over my head. I go, "Frank, fucking throw it right here, man!"
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you've seen it recently, huh?
3: That, I, re- I remember all that <laughs> oh, stuff. Oh
1: shit! Uh, that's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. Uh,
3: but, but this show's good, man. It's it's you know, and I'm different now. You know, in the beginning, you know, I was kind of people were. I had to introduce myself to everybody. You know, people didn't. Nobody knew me that I was a comedian and all that stuff. So, you know, now twenty years later, you know, everybody's aware of me, and uh, it's different, man. Like Bruce said, you know, we don't have to introduce you to the show. Everybody knows you, and they'll come to the show. But the shows, the show's really good. Debbie Wolf who was a showrunner. Bruce is around, but you know, he's doing the Connors, and just great to have. It's great to have him be involved. You know, and see mine. It's all you know. We're all family from way back in the day, so it's very special, man. Like, like I would say. I was thinking about how to equate it. And, you know, the first year that Dan Marino played, he went to the Super Bowl. And when he lost, he was like, oh, you know, it was my first year. I'll be back. And he never went back. So the idea of doing the first show and having to go, you know, five years, 120 episodes, and then trying to get back to network TV for, you know, 15 years, uh, was is very, very difficult. And, I, and I, I think you really start to understand it when you pitch to the networks. And you're known but they, they're not looking to buy anything that you're in. The idea that they, two networks wanted this show right off the bat, and NBC never deviated from their, from their love of the show and the idea of the show is uh, very special. It's, very, it's, it's, a, it's a victory lap that uh, I will enjoy whether it goes uh, 10 episodes or uh, 210 episodes.
1: Well, Cheech gave us great advice. He said you got to get that one thing, that, that one thing,
3: and yeah, got he, and I, he just did the show. Uh, he's done both of them. But Cheech, you know, I was struggling to do to do things, and uh, he said to me, "Man, you just got to get that one thing. Once you get one thing, one thing becomes another thing." And uh, I called him when I got bread and roses in two thousand, and I said, "I got that one thing." All right, call it back. To it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, so, the, so when I started to get to know Cheech in the early, you know, two thousand, so on Sunday. Uh, one Sunday, he's like, "Come on, to my house, man. We'll sit down. Do not miss him for you." So, so we go over there, and we go on top of his, his his garage. You can see all of you know the beach, and the sun is going down. He, he goes, "You want to smoke it up there?" Yeah, said, a Good thing we smoke a little bit up there, and then we go down these stairs. You know, we go down there, and and, and you know, I'm high. And he goes, "Hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna go inside. I'll see you later, man. Thanks for coming over." So I get in my car. I go up to the gate, and I'm looking at the gate, and I'm thinking, is it opening or not opening? It looks like it's opening. I'll I'm I'm right there for 20 minutes, and then he sees me after he gets out of the shower. He walks by a window. He sees me out there. He comes and knocks on the window, and I'm like, what? what? You know? And, and, uh, <laughs> and he goes, hey, you're still too far from the gate. I got to get closer, man. <laughs> I was probably 50 yards from the fucking gate.
1: (laughs) So you you talked about the Dodgers a little bit. Why don't you talk about how golf saves your life?
3: Man, I mean, you know, I I went kind of under the radar for my whole life. You know, I don't think my grandparents really didn't give a fuck what I was doing, you know. uh, I had some pretty good friends that kind of kept me connected to school, but I was not a scholar by no means. But, you know, I just felt different than everybody. I didn't feel the same as those guys. Not that I was better. I just felt I was different. You know, I just felt that, that whatever life they wanted, that that wasn't going to be my life. And, and and I loved baseball. So in 1979 in San Fernando, um, my coach and I got into it. You know, my coach had bought a batting cage and a net and, you know, they put it up and we were going to have a car wash again to pay for the, thing. so he gave us like, he gave us like a, a, a book of car wash tickets to sell maybe like a hundred, you know, and he says, I go back and give them back and I didn't sell any, like, I, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to sell car wash tickets. He says, you're only $250. And I said, for what? And it was for the tickets. I said, I didn't sell any. He goes, no, but, you, you know, you're responsible for, the sale of these tickets and what you didn't sell, you're going to make up for them. I'm giving you hundred fifty dollars So we ran at it, he and I, and, uh, and and he and I going at it nose to nose. He said, you know, you're a fucking quitter and when things get tough. You quit. And I want to see where you end up in life because quitters, minute it gets tough, you pack it in. I remember he said, you pack it in and it gets tough. You just pack it in. I said, Oh yeah. 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 Well, we'll see. I want to see where you are. Come and check in on me for 10 years later. That's what the fuck you're doing with yourself. So I started to play golf, and it was so hard to do, and I loved it. You know, I played on a whim. Ernie and I went and played on Christmas '81. Did not you hit lemons in your backyard? Hit lemons in the backyard. We had a, we had a we had a seven iron back. Door. I don't know how I got back there. And they said uh, I used to say that it was in case we heard a noise. You know, uh, so <laughs> so I started just would hit these lemons in the backyard. I would watch you know the British Open. I love the British Open. I was up early, so I'd be watching the British Open, and and I started to play. And it was tough, man. I would fucking move the ball and I would cheat and score. And and and, and one, one, one time we were playing out Cariso and Simar. And I said, uh, after like the seventh hole, I said, hey, at nine, I'm going to take off now. I'm going to take off. Where are you going out. I got some shit to do. And I was always walking off like after nine. That was so difficult. And then when I was in the car, I just, it's almost like in those old movies the guy's head appears over you. You know, when things get tough, you pack it in. I was like, See that guy could hear him, and then I was like, I started to evaluate my life, and I was like, man, that that dude was right. So I went back to San Fernando. i had probably been there in five years, four years, and I went over there, and he was putting the bases away, picking up all the equipment, and I was walking to him, and he's kind of looking at me, and, and uh, he's like, "Is that my third baseman?" And I say, hey, "What's up, coach?" "Cause what are you doing here?" And I just went over the fight, and I apologized for my behavior there. And I said, you know, I just came to tell you that you were right. I just came to apologize to you for the way I treated you. And at that point in my life, I was probably 21, 22, 20. I had never apologized to anybody ever in my life. We would just pretend they didn't exist. Like, if we didn't agree with somebody, fuck them, you know? And uh, so that was a turning point. And if he hadn't, have, uh, if we hadn't had that that thing over, over the tickets and playing golf, I'm not sure if I would have ever put the two things together. Wow.
1: So ultimately, you became a a gr- really good golfer, and uh, you played at Pebble Beach.
3: I love I love playing at Pebble Beach. Yeah, you know um, it was nice to watch Andy Garcia, and, and I'd be on the road, and I would be watching the pep, you know Pebble Beach where Romano was there, Kevin James. I would see Andy, and I would think, man, nah, you know, wherever I was in some motel or hotel or wherever I was, I made a point to watch him, and Fucking Andy Garcia was my partner, like, the first seven years that I played. It was great. And then, you know, what happens, man, is, like, politics came into it. And, you know, all of a sudden, man, it wasn't as much fun. And you got, like, you know, people come in and they don't like the way you act or they don't like that. Was, I was doing the Bob Hope with Luke and Sam Jackson, and we were leading. And before I was walking to the first tee, this girl says to me, can I talk to you? And I said, yeah. He goes, oh, you know, the board over the Bob Hope wanted me to ask you um, if you could, um, you know, be more like you are on TV. <laughs> Unbelievable! I said, "What the fuck does that mean?" She goes, "Exactly." Like they heard somebody heard you saying bad words, bad words, fucking. So <laughs> <laughs> well, they heard you saying bad words, and uh, so fuck that, man. I mean, I just was who I just was who I wanted. I mean, I, you know, I love the AT T, but you you don't want to be where they don't want you. So yeah, I'm, but I'm,
1: one good thing is you got you, good point. you got. Very close to your boyhood friend, Lee Trevino. The,
3: the best. Why
1: don't you talk, <laughs> tell a little bit about, about your relationship with Lee?
3: I'll tell you what. <laughs> I think, amen, amen. Uh, where, where, where do I start? Uh, the, uh, the, the best was, I call him up, you know, call him up on time and, and he says, amen. Everything black in my life is gone. I said, what? Everything black in my life is gone. I said, my caddy died. Uh, uh, a tree fell on my SUV. Said, Which one was it? My dog, dad. Oh, he said that uh, uh, my caddy died. I had to put my dog down, and a tree fell on my SUV.
2: <laughs>
3: everything black is gone huh? everything black is gone yeah black is and oh my god black man lead man just the just the greatest man like i like i watched him you know growing up i never thought that we would have the relationship that we that we have and uh he's just mad one time when he hurt his back you know he had a bad back and he went to germany to get some rollers put in his back and he was in so much pain. He answered, "He sounded like an old Mexican lady. I said, he goes, man. Hello. <laughs> like, hey, hola, senora. It's not Lee. <laughs> it's me, man. Hey, man, it's me. I said, why do you sound like an old Mexican lady? Said, I can't walk. <laughs> 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 what? One has to do with the others. <laughs> he's, he's the best, man. You know, this year when he was playing over there at St. Andrews and they were playing that four-hole four tournament, and, um, you know, his his childhood was, was a lot like mine, you know. And uh, I was watching him. He was on the 17th Hall taking pictures of Tiger and McElroy. There was a female golfer and him on the smoking bridge. And uh, he, he he they caught him on camera telling all the reporters, Hey, man, can one of you guys uh, take a picture of me and my family? And uh, when he said that, Matt, it just was so beautiful to hear him say, well, one of you guys take a picture of me and my family, and he sent me the picture, and it's a great picture of all of us—his son-in-law and Daniel and Olivia and everybody. It's just beautiful, man, beautiful. But what a what a road that he was on, and then you know the last I met him, you know I've known him twenty years, maybe, and the road that we're, he and I are on.
1: Yeah, I mean, remember that famous photo that was taken of you guys at Pebble Beach?
3: Yeah, I to- we. Uh, I was planning the. I think the first tee over there in Pebble Beach, and he hadn't been to Pebble Beach in 20-some years, and he wanted to go play a practice round at Cypress. And I said, no, man, let's go play in the at Pebble, man. You haven't been there forever. So we go, we got on the third hole in the middle of the fairway. The guy's cutting the grass. These guys come up, all the, all the workers there, Latino guys. And he goes, hey, tomamos un foto. yeah, we'll take a picture. Take a picture. And we got on the tractor. And uh, that guy went and got him developed while we were still playing and came back and then Lee and I signed up. But when we looked at the picture, we noticed that nobody was sitting in the seat of the tractor. So it was very poignant that all these Latinos would be around a, a, tra- a, a machine, a a lawnmower, you know, big lawnmower, but nobody would be in the seat. Wow.
1: Yeah. It was it was a great it was a great photo. That's a great picture in the book, yeah. Yeah, we've got the that's photo right. in the book,
2: George's chapter. Yeah, it's a great great picture. You yeah. know, no part of, no part of this
3: has been boring or no part of it has been unexciting you know nobody really nobody really know i mean people know me stand up or whatever but nobody really knows me like the personal me which is pretty funny and way different than what people expect you know and uh you know to to be able to appreciate the things that happen to me uh now much more than than i did when they were happening to me. But in 20 years to, to maintain a higher level of gratitude and a high, higher level of appreciation is pretty amazing, man. For somebody who was raised by so much negativity and then always was looking at the side of things that was more negative, like awaiting awaiting doom. You know, I don't I don't await I don't await doom anymore. I think every day is great.
2: You know, George, I haven't said much throughout this interview because it's like two old friends just exchanging stories, which is great, and the stories are amazing. But. Uh You've wore so many hats, man. Films, TV, stage, actor, director, producer, writer. What hat fits you best? Do you
1: still consider yourself a stand-up comic first and he, foremost? He can't find a hat that fits him. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you don't know need that shirt. I tell
1: you
3: what, put <laughs> <Yeah>. that shirt? I'll <laughs> 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 uh, get that manhole cover. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think I, I really like the idea of you know, the sitcom is a great, I mean, imagine, you know, to be able to go back and I've done so many episodes of multi-camera that it's it's pretty easy for me, you know, and and, and to still be able to think on my feet, it just we just adds another layer, two layers to the show already, you know, that 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 these jokes wouldn't have been there. And that's I think is the special thing about the show that makes the show more unique than other shows is that a guy that the star of it and the guy who's one of the creators of it is on the floor rehearsing it every week. And some of the best stuff comes from us rehearsing during the week, but to have Mayan in this and to be able to see her every day and, uh, appreciate the sitcom formula. You know, nobody ever wants to go with you when you do standup, but when you're doing a sitcom, everybody wants to come every day.
1: Well, yeah, my, my favorite memory of being with George, uh, was one night. He doesn't, he doesn't, probably has no idea what, they, what I'm going to say. But one night he was doing a, a show in Fresno. So we jumped on his private plane and we f- flew up to Fresno and there were 15,000 people in the auditorium. And I was standing behind him looking out over the audience, over over George and over the audience. And he told his first joke and I never heard such... Loud laughter in my life. I was, oh, it was like I was hit by a wall of laughter. It was incredible. And I can imagine what you must feel like to hear that. It must be very, very empowering. Uh, it was a great night.
3: Yeah, I'm still out there, man. I think I'm looking to wrap it up here pretty soon. Uh, but um, last weekend, we were out there, and, and yeah, the response when you walk out is pretty. It's deafening, man. You know, it's 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 deafening, and I still I still love it. You know, I still think of it as kind of almost like um, the way people would look at their life or having a a life where you get together with friends. I mean, I get together and do stand up, and it's you know, I still write for it. I still love it. I think when I detach, I'll detach for good. Uh, But it's been something that has given me so much, and uh, I mean, I still have I have the. I remember I bought, a, uh, I bought a microphone stand at Radio Shack in my senior year in high school. And then I stole the microphone from audiovisual and they asked me for it. They go, did you remember seeing this microphone? The, fuck, the, the fucking style of the whole prison, the, the, the president's uh, speech again. I don't think I got it. <laughs> <laughs> so I wrapped it in white. Athletic baseball tape that I used to wrap my the bats in, and I have it still. It's in my dressing room at 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 Universal, and I see it in the corner. It's all rusted and beat up, but I mean that's how connected I am to to that stuff, you know. And be able to meet, you know, the people that I admired, you know, that growing up and be friends with them is pretty amazing too. How
1: about the how about the night we went to see Rickles?
3: Oh, fucking <laughs> down Rickles, man! I've never battled before. We go eat dinner afterwards. And he goes, hey, senor, come over here, senor. you know who this is? He goes, yeah, who is this? He's George Lopez. I right, takes the $5 out, hands it to the waiter. He goes, buy a village in your country. <laughs> 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 and so we're the Western room, you know, and, and he's got this loafers on, fucking robot, fucking the, the best, man, really the best. And I said, hey, Don. I have Ronda Blasio with me, the manager. I go, <laughs> I go. Hey Don, Ron used to manage uh, uh, Richard Pryor and Freddie Prince, and without missing a beat, Don goes, Hey, Mr. Lucky. himself <laughs> up, <laughs> one oh, he shot
1: also, He also said that night, uh, he introduced George to the crowd. And he said, Never in my life did I see a day would I see a day when a Mexican has passed me by.
3: Oh my god. <laughs> Stand up, George. I got passed by a Mexican. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking hilarious, man. But just, just all of it's the best. You know, you know about a month ago, uh, my wardrobe person, Michelle, came to me and she said, I got something that's very, very strange, but I think, I think you'll appreciate it. She'll so have a friend of mine who's a jeweler. And somehow it's been authenticated that they got uh, Johnny Carson's Rolex. So Johnny Carson had a Rolex, a presidential. I remember seeing it as a kid. You know, it's got this watch that's shining. And GQ had done an article on his presidential Rolex. And the first time he wore it, Bo Derek was on in 1979. And he wore it. I think he wore it even in the last show that he did. And I did the show in 91. And I believe that he was wearing it the night that I did the show. So when I shook his hand afterwards, I mean, we would have been connected. He would have had the the watch on, you know. And she says to me, you had came with a letter of how it was obtained. You know, it was a guy that was dating Alexis, uh, uh, Johnny Carson's widow. She, it got, it became, you know, her property. They were dating. She gave it to him as a gift. He kind of, kind of thought it was kind of odd. He hung on to it, maybe wore it twice in 10 years. And then, I said, "So what is this?" You know, they goes, "Oh, you know, the guy knows that I know you. He knows that you love comedy, historian of comedy, and he wants to know if if you want to buy it." And I said, "Wow, I want to buy it." I said, and you know, across from my dressing room at Universal is the Johnny Carson building. On Jay Leno Lane, we'll worry about that one later. Um, but. The the idea, and she goes, and and the guy says, if you don't want to see it, no problem. You just wanted you to do it, take a look at it. Dick Wolf wants to look at it. Some other people were interested in buying it, and um,
1: there it
2: is.
0: Wow,
3: Very there nice. it is.
0: Beautiful.
1: Well, I can't top that, but here's my Rolex, which is ah! a, which was a gift from George. Nice Christmas, two thousand five or so. That's right. It was 2005.
3: Friends, I gave all my friends that uh, you know were around me, I gave them uh, uh, Rolexes.
1: So, Derek, you can go fuck yourself.
3: <laughs> <laughs> actually, I, I want to
0: throw something in quickly about that. Uh, Chris Rock said that you inspired him uh, because before you were really, really famous, you were, you were, you were actually a stand-up comedian. He said he were, you were the first comic that he ever saw. With a Rolex, and he realized that you could actually do this as a job and be successful at it.
3: Yeah,
0: isn't that crazy? That is yeah. crazy. crazy. And, you, he told me that too right before his book. Oh wow! Okay.
1: You know, and another thing about George is he always wears a suit in his stand-up shows. He always wears a suit because he he's he's not like one of those guys who wants to wear you know crappy clothes. Uh, he he wants to present himself in the best light.
3: Is that right? When, growing up, all the important people were wearing suits. Like if they go, I, I want to speak to the manager, you know. Uh, <laughs> the manager a become as fucking stupid as fucking all these people. Wow, I'm the manager, you know. <laughs> the idea of somebody wearing a suit, you know, was the idea of, author- of authority, you
2: know. It's like a clipboard, yeah. If you got one, nobody's going to party.
3: Yeah. like uh, a clipboard, yeah. I used to walk through, I used to. I walk around work with a with a with a Manila folder with the sports page in it, and they would say, "Hey, uh, you got five minutes." I would hold a Manila folder up. I gotta get these signed. We'll go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got a couple
0: questions. You mentioned at the beginning of of the interview that you had quit some things, or you quit everything prior to uh, to stand up in golf. Can you tell me some of those, or tell us some of those things that you that you quit at? Um. <clears throat>
3: Let's see. A lot of them were people. A lot of them were people. You know, I, I, I let a lot of friends go by, and I quit on them. But uh, uh, the first thing that I quit at was the accordion. And uh, there was some fucking dude walking around with an accordion selling kids' lessons. And my I talked to my grandmother. I just wanted to be a performer. So I think we paid for 10 lessons. I went to maybe two and I had to hear about the fucking accordion for the rest of my life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the <laughs> <laughs> grandma said, I'm getting to start a long affair. Time to put a fucking accordion down there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, yeah, I, I, I you know, um, in school I quit, uh, people I quit. At work, I would quit and i and the, I think the most part was just to was just to leave people behind, you know, like just not talk to them or whatever um, didn't yeah. didn't value any friendships, so I would quit on people and they were good people i mean not not uh, uh, even in the beginning of my life like I would just fucking disappear you know and uh i wouldn't be I wouldn't hold myself responsible, so I think that the the best lesson of not quitting is you know I hold myself responsible for my own actions and and uh, where before. I would just hide out or you know not ever ever see people again. But I mean still I think the thing that still remains is my inability to connect to to people because I didn't see any healthy relationships growing up. So, you know, stand up takes the place of a person, you know, a connection to a person. And then I think doing the sitcom takes place of, you know, as a job to where it connected to that, but it's still not the real life, it's still not the real world. And I also, you know, I picked golf as a sport to play where you can do it by yourself. You don't need anybody around. So, yeah, I, I picked things that I play the guitar, you know, try to play the guitar. So I picked things that you could do alone, and there is no weight to having somebody around.
1: And did yeah, you once sport. say golf, you could hit, uh, hit something with a st- hit something with a white stick? or What, what did you yeah, say?
3: Said, said, i said, I go, I go, why do you play golf? I said, imagine you get to hit something white with a stick.
2: Yep. <laughs> nobody complains. No, nobody complains. Oh.
0: I, I uh, one more question. So, um, let's see here. Sorry. Oh, so I noticed that you have a. I saw a picture of you, and I can see it in this uh, this this shot too. That you have a, a tattoo on yeah. your, on your hand. It says uh, "Darkness," oh. um, and I, I think it's a reference to Charlie Murphy. And everybody yeah. that I've heard f- famous talk about Charlie Murphy. They have nothing but, uh, you know, exceptional things to say about him. And I'm wondering, uh, what, what are your great memories of him and why was he so special to everybody?
3: You know, he was, uh, first of all, you know, imagine, you know, being in the shadow of, of A. Murphy. Yeah. So when I had my talk show in 2009, Charlie was a guest, he had a book and I read the book and, um, I read the book and, and, uh. I said, man, this guy's been through so much, you know. And when we started to put the comedy get down tour together, I didn't I didn't really know Charlie very much, you know, other than just meeting him that first time. But I thought, you know, let me invite this guy to be part of this thing. We were raising money to 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 uh, complete Richard Pryor statue in Peoria, which we which we did. And uh, I'd never seen Charlie uh, in in a social situation, and he just had this. First of all, he didn't like to be touched. That's that's number one. Like if you touch him, you fucking snap around. man. I was always be like, hey, "Hey, hey, it's okay, it's okay." And he just was so honest. He touched me to talk, like, through his teeth. He just you know, and um, he was just like a a person that if it's one of those things like when you get somebody to like you, that is just thorny and short with people, and you get to see what the person is really like. Almost kind of maybe looking at a bit of yourself as an identity, and uh, we'd go to on tour, and I would always be there in the in the my dressing room first, and then he would show up, and he always came in, and uh, he just we just had this wonderful relationship, man, of like making each other laugh and and this and that, and then one one day we're in there, and uh, he says to me, uh, "When I was seven years old, I wrote I wrote my my friend's mom a love letter." And I said, What? He goes, You heard me, motherfucker. I said, I wrote my, I said, He goes, My friend's mom was fine. He was like, Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I wrote her a letter that said, Big things come in small packages. And I gave it to my friend to (laughs) give to mom. (laughs) And the mom read it, whipped the kid's ass. And then called Charlie's mom. And Charlie said, I knew when I saw my mom on the phone and the way she was looking at me. <laughs> his mom had read the note. She screamed at me. She beat my ass. She took her fucking belt off and beat me with a belt. He goes, but I didn't care because I had already professed my love. And <laughs> <laughs> then Eddie Murphy, they were in this room. We had a, we had a party over here uh, after that. They, they were on this couch right here. That uh, Charlie was sitting right here, and Eddie was standing up right here. And that uh, uh, Eddie Murphy said that Charlie used to steal chains from men when he was twelve. Wow, oh, wow, like he was just a thug, and and just you know the sweetest the sweetest guy that you could imagine in the in the roughest exterior possible right yeah
0: and then i have uh, one more question uh so th- there's a a quote i thought was really amazing you said uh when things are bad uh it's time to reinvent yourself can you tell us like the process that you go through to reinvent yourself well you know i knew that i had a problem
3: with looking at you know my grandmother always bought like tabloids and People magazine and Mexican magazines, all gossip bullshit, you know, and I would look at them. And then when I got into business, it, I would look at people or read variety. And it's always about other people getting shows and other people getting jobs. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it got to be a, where you could be very negative about people you didn't meet and you could waste most fucking time worrying about what other people are doing. And comedians would get shows, and there would be a guy that I knew would get a show. You'd see him on TV, and you go, "I'm gonna funny." And then one time I was working during the day, and I met this this woman at, at Igby's, and she was beautiful, man, like this beautiful girl. And we got along, and she's like, "Call me at work. You know, we'll have we'll have lunch." And I called her at work, and we talked, and she said that they had a comedian at work, and I said, who is it? And then I guess I like belittled the dude and she said to me on the phone, let me call you back. And she never called me back. And oh. I think it was because of my negativity. So to reinvent myself and to be a person that would be less concerned with what other people were doing and only concerned with what I was doing was, was one of the reinventions. Also another reinvention was to be better to myself physically then I had been doing. I was drinking a lot and had a great time, but I was abusing my body and 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 I don't drink as much. And that was another reinvention of. Um, I mean, I'm still capable of it, but I've decided not not to just on special occasions. So the wear and tear on my body is less. But also, you know, I stay in contact with with my friends, and that was another thing is that instead of uh, you know disappearing. I'm better at uh, staying connected to the people that I, I enjoy their company, so that's another reinvention. That's great. That's
2: great. That is great stuff, man. Running towards people instead of running away from them, and uh, the advice yeah. you give is like,
3: yeah, straight up. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it, it's almost like you know, I have an internal monologue with myself because I spent you know, as an only child, so much time that even when I'm with myself, I think there's a, a sense of um, of a of, of Almost like a dual identity, where you can appreciate things when you're when you're by yourself. That things happen to you and you understand them in the moment. You know, Eddie Van Halen and I were were, were very very close friends, and I met him in 2010. And you know, they, he gave me a guitar for the talk show, like the hundredth episode. And his wife said, you know, give him a call, man. It's like he's always home, you know. So I called him up, and we had we had dinner at La Loja on Ventura Boulevard. We became very very close friends, and uh, up until he passed and you know, um, it, it, a valuable relationship of someone that I admired. And I think, again, like somebody who loved golf so much that wherever he wanted to go, I would be like, you want to go to Pebble Beach? I took him on a plane, went to Pebble, came back, we played at Lakeside. He kept his membership at Lakeside. And, I mean, I didn't collect guitars when he was alive. And when he passed, he had given me a guitar. I had a couple that he played here in the house. and. um it just became a thing that, in a way to kind of honor him, but also to you know not forget him. And it's been uh, it's been special, man. It's tough. It's tough having him gone because it was one of those things that very rare to meet somebody that you would be friends with that deeply in a short amount of time. And that I'm sure was a relationship that would have lasted all of our lives. Yeah.
2: Well, special relationship. It was a pleasure watching you two guys interact because it's obvious oh, you yeah. guys got a history and a half.
3: That's for sure.
2: And I really want to thank you for coming on, George. It's been it's been great. I'm sure Lopez versus Lopez is going to be a huge hit. There's not a doubt in my freaking mind, man. Not a doubt. And uh, just keep being you, man. And thank uh, you again. And uh, a
1: El Jefe, Mas Chingon, <laughs> George <laughs> Lopez, one of the 25 most influential Hispanics in the world.
3: I might have moved up that list, now.
1: You might have moved up. <laughs> <laughs> be well. I, and I, I know you got a flight to catch the, to Arizona or someplace. So be well. Catch your flight. And I can't thank you enough for doing this. I like it. I thank you anytime. Knock the nuts in tonight, George. I'm sure you will, pal. Dr. the uh, nuts in.
2: Uh, all Take the best. care. See you thank soon. You. It was great. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. Just great. Yep. I didn't know you were a big Charlie Murphy fan.
0: I'm a fan of, the, I, you don't know a lot about me, Billy. Oh, I'm
2: sure. You don't want to know much more about you,
0: you don't take very much time. You don't, you don't try to get to know too many black people. So.
2: Oh, my oh. goodness. I opened for Charlie Murphy once at Tempe Improv. Did you really? Yeah, I yeah, smoked a joint with him in the back room, in the green room. Yeah, smoked a half a joint with him. I'm nice sure. guy, really nice guy.
0: I'm but sure.
2: I didn't know you were a fan, yeah. But Eddie Murphy was probably, I mean, oh, Jesus, he was on top of the world at 19 right <laughs> Yeah. I He's, mean, who, who does what he did? George
1: was just. Who's uh, got just, 12 kids like Eddie Murphy?
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> 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 I like my cigar too, but I take it out once
2: in a while. <laughs> <sighs> he was great, man. Just a great guy. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and,
1: yeah. I knew he would be.
3: Yeah.
2: Just I knew it. He would it. I mean, he just goes off. He just he riffs. And, I really didn't, couldn't say anything because I, I didn't want to. I didn't want it to deject. You guys were getting along. I, just, I was just sitting there
1: enjoying the show which Thank was you. great. Thank you. It was, a, it was a good time. Yeah. So with that, uh, this will be on, I think Wednesday, November 2nd or something like that. So we've got Pete Bessie coming up in the future. Uh, we've got a, a lot of good shows, so please stay tuned. And,
0: uh, I have um, a feeling that Pete show is going to be really good.
1: Pete show will probably be a good show also. Yeah. Great. Writer. Yeah. great, writer.
0: great. It was a fantastic thing. Thank you, Frank. You, uh, Thank you, Derek.
1: I go to great lengths to say thank you, Derek. I <laughs> evidently don't say it enough because, you know,
2: whatever. Whatever. But- <laughs> You guys gotta wipe your hands for jerking each other off. You're going to get all <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: sticky. <laughs> Wait a minute! Oh, oh Jesus! But you're doing
1: a fabulous job, Derek. You do such a good job at editing.
0: Oh, oh incredible my God! It's getting deep in here. I can't take it. You say you're
1: gonna show up at eight thirty. You show up at eight twenty nine. If you're gonna show up at eight thirty five, you say you'll call me and you say I'm running five minutes late. It's such a pre- pleasure to work with such in, a professional.
0: Thank you so much. In honor of uh, George Lopez, I'll say. Um, uh, No, I won't say that.
1: Go fuck yourself.
2: (laughs) (laughs) See ya. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We really appreciate it. Unbelievable guest today, Frank. Thanks for bringing him on.
0: Next week's guest what is bound to be a fiery and exciting interview Hall of Fame basketball writer Peter Vesey.